produced and directed arts and music documentaries and drama, including the acclaimed films on Goya, John Donne, Paul Gauguin, George Ligeti, and others. His omnibus Christmas special, Shalkin the Painter, uh, came out in 1979 and is remembered as one of the TV's most acclaimed ghost stories. I'm telling you, I watched it as a boy and I'm terrified. And it's out now, you can get it from the BFI DVD. 1982, he directed and wrote and narrated a two and a half interview with Orson Welles, which is just seminal. If you are interested in Orson Welles, you have to see this. It really is the definitive work. He wrote and directed a 1994 feature film, The Arrow of the Pig, with Colin Firth. Directed the Olivia and Tony Award nominated stage play Jack, which he co wrote with actor Nicole Williamson, who I believe did the tremendous uh, recording of The Hobbit. Um, series produced from co writer with the acclaimed UC Dramatizer and Leonardo Bitch. It goes on and on. But this was his first film, and I think perhaps the best praise I'll do before we hand over to the questions is from Professor Tolkien himself. He was a very nice, very young man and personally equipped with some intelligence and insight. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> he didn't get on to the butt, but, no, it's just the answer. Um, so what I'm going to do is ask a few questions, then there'll be a roaming microphone um, going around uh, to pick up sort of like uh, questions from you. Um, and I thought, if it's okay, I could just start right at the beginning, because Tolkien, as we know, was, was not very enthusiastic about dealing with the media, etc., but he managed to persuade both the BBC and Tolkien to agree to the programme. I don't know if you could give us a background to the uh, commission. Yeah, I, I remember myself as being a kind of lone ranger, you know, insisting the BBC did this important man against all the odds and as, as a first time director. When I actually look in the file, I find that was fantasy of mine. <laughs> and, and in fact, what had happened was um, Tolkien's uh, publishers represented by a wonderful woman called Joy Hill, who, who was, um, I think she was the lights officer around the night, but in fact she looked after Professor Tolkien, had written to the BBC saying, you know, why don't you do something? He'd been pretty ill at the time, and apparently Canadian television had come across to do an interview and he'd been too ill to do it, and they'd gone home. But they'd said to our mummy, can you get the BBC interested? Because we'd like to, to take it. Um, and in fact, the, the, the producer who was um, written to by Troy Hill happened to be the editor of um, a series called Release, which tended to run two short films in one edition, so two half-hour films, pretty, pretty much. Talking around with a film about Barbara Hepburn. Uh, and she had a great difficulty finding someone to make it, not agreeing to do it. Um, so it, it, it was no one's sort of persuasion, let alone mine, uh, that caused it to be made. But she couldn't find any of the tried and tested producers to do it, simply because they hadn't read Tolkien. And if you think back, I mean, you can't think back, you're mostly too young, but um, 1968, he was, you know, he was a bestseller. So on and so on. But he certainly hasn't reached the kind of dizzy heights that he, he was to in decades uh, to come. And it happened that most of the more literary types in the other part of the BBC simply didn't know the word. And I did. And it just by chance, she's turned to this gawky, not quite teenager, but sort of early 20s, and said, Have you read Tolkien? And I said, Yes, I like him very much, Lord of the Rings. Oh. You're doing the film. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that's, that's the 
really how it, how it um, came about. So Zango's my kind of you know, view of myself as the, uh, the man who got it uh, made. But that's how I came to, came to, uh, to make it as, and it was indeed the, my first film. And I, I think my first thing ever in colour, because at the time BBC Two was in colour, but BBC One continued in black and white for quite some, some time. Now, it's interesting you say, because the Radio Times, i just read this out for, for the programme, said about the Lord of the Rings in America, it's a craze bigger than Batman, one million, which was big in the late 60s, by the way. One million copies sold in 1967 alone in Britain, a lot of people have never even heard of it. But, and so the filming was over a period of four days, um, I think it was, but correct me if I was wondering if you could sort of maybe give some recollection, recollections of the days. Yes, the, the um, just while I talk, um, I'll look. I mean, the, the main thing about it was that, that I, I wanted to do a 50-minute film on him. Um, Lorna happened to run a program that, as I say, took two short films. My idea had always been to try to extend it and, um, and run it again in a year or two's time as a, a longer film. Um, I think what worked against that was um, a lot to do with my own inexperience, actually. But um, yeah, just funny that the schedule Monday was uh, yeah, setting up in the old house in St Albans <coughs> in the morning and doing the main interview with Professor Tolkien in the afternoon. Um, Tuesday was other interviews, both days again in the old house. What, what you do to avoid travelling to too many places is you use the same place but different corners. Of so a lot of the interviews were done there. Um, uh, Wednesday was Merton. Wednesday afternoon into evening was the, the father display. Put on by Brooks. I found, I found a letter from Brooks' father saying I'd be happy to do it for us for 150 quid. Um, and uh, Thursday um, was Magdalen Bridge, uh, St Hughes. Friday morning was the helicopter shop, and Friday afternoon was back to London. So it was kind of four-day shooting, but five days in all. And the reason I mention the, my uh, inexperience, and it's, it's, something, it's something that's often been on my mind for 45 years now, but it's always been in the back of my mind. Um, so this is the sort of the confession, which is I, I wanted to do a film with no narration and without using the interviewer's question. The arts interview had kind of been invented by Hugh Weldon, who was a great man, and I adored him, it's a terrific boss. Um, but I didn't want to do that kind of interview, and I certainly didn't want to do an interview that featured me, the other side of the camera, because I can't stand that. There will be nodding and smiles. So I think you get a real, a better idea of the relationship with a person when you're not appearing on the screen. Punching my old friends, Melvin Bryan and Alan Yentel. I just do, and I've never appeared on screen. However, for the first, for this first film, I also felt because it was an introduction, mainly intended as an introduction to Tolkien for people who didn't know him. That was the, the main point of doing it at that time on on television. For people who didn't know him. Therefore, I wanted to make it in this slightly, this rather 
at the time, rather radical kind of quick-cut way with people answering each other's questions, sometimes even with people picking up each other's sentences halfway through, and with Tolkien coming in every so often and doing a really good kind of fist on something stupid. That, <laughs> that sort of feeling. What that meant was that when I did the interview with him, these are trade secrets, but for a long time now, um, I didn't ask him questions. I gave him cues. So instead of saying, when did you start writing The Hobbit? And he knew I was going to do this, so it was a good agreement in advance. I would simply say, very quickly, tell us about writing The Hobbit. And even then, the reason for this, of course, is you want to start with the beginning of a sentence. You don't want him to stop. Would you, you know, tell us about writing? Yes, well, I was in Northmore Road. And everyone goes, well, what do you mean? I mean, yes to what? I wanted him to start by saying, I, I first invented, I think it was in Northmore Road at the time, and I was doing this and this and this. The, the, and that all sounded fine when I talked to him in advance. Once you actually get going, you have... Um, a, a rather over-enthusiastic, slightly nervous young director facing a venerable and great man, intellect, academic, who probably didn't watch television much and wasn't very aware of the, the exigencies of the medium and the, the demands of the medium. So he kind of forgot all this that I talked to him about before. I don't blame him at all. So you get on, on the rushes, and I've got a few of the, the off-cuts here, you hear this terrible, rather high-pitched, strange, um, nervous voice prompting him. <laughs> even saying to him, uh, so could you start that sentence again? He said, I first started thinking about all the reasons. Yes, yes, of course I did. No, not for <laughs> Saying um, after it went out, and this is, I, I love this, 
Okay, there we go. Um, I've watched the film on television. I didn't like it at all. <laughs> it looked like there's some kind of smashed fragments of a picture joined together in random order. <laughs> New paragraph. It was delightful meeting you. Why don't you come up and we'll drink champagne? <laughs> <laughs> this is the wonderful thing was he entirely separated from quite rightly the world of television from the world of people you meet and chat to. And I came up to see him again, I think it was three times. And it certainly was twice, because I remember drinking champagne on the lawn, I think, here. And, um, and I got a letter that I wrote to him here, a copy of it, um, where I'd obviously been seen in hospital and drunk champagne in hospital. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry about the length. No, that's I don't know what you you visiting hospitals. I didn't mention champagne, from what I recall. But yeah. I have to say, what you capture there, for me, when I lecture on Tolkien, you seem to capture him as well, because sometimes we often talk about Tolkien's lecturing style, and you know, people have alluded to this already in, in the presentations, but those wonderful digressions where he pauses the silence, he thinks of something. So I, I'm glad you went down that route as well. Now, this is really, I wanted to hand it out to the audience, because you've all seen this film many, many times, and now is your chance to ask that burning question, uh, what did he say off camera? But anyway, let's, let's uh, if you have friends up. Right. Yes, yes. Um, this is picking up the, the bit before I don't know the lady's name who was speaking. Um, the academic equal someone else will notice Val Cunningham, the very young Val Cunningham, doing his radical lefty speech. How did you come to select him? Because it sets up a very funny politics, a generational politics in the faculty. He's, which he's is the great one who talks retro about his retrogressive... Yeah, the one who writes on about, you know, right. you know At the bottom of the tower in the 1968 sort yeah. of way. Yes. Yeah, how did, how did you come to... Uh, I think Corinne Perry found it. I think I said, go out and find me someone who will save it. Like, because there's a lot of 
1960 documentaries, but that seemed strange. And I was wondering, why did you choose to go that and not go for the talking head experts? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, that's actually, I've got something on that. Where in my original sort of, you write a sort of pitch document to prove that you, you, you have actually read the stuff and you know what you're talking about. And I think I, I mentioned. I do mention a couple of pretty starry academics in it. I think I mentioned Winston Orton. Um, and I think I mentioned Jim J.I.M. Stewart, uh, who was Michael Innes, who's the, uh, the detective thriller writer. But uh, this is it. it's a sort of two page thing that you write for your producer just to, to tell them what they're going to get. And yeah, it contains things like I like to dispense with.
those rushes, which is just about the sound. What sounds are nice and what sounds are ugly? And he does a little bit on that, which is very nice. I think the nice sounds are the ones with the letters L in them and so on. The ugly sounds are the, are the well, like the quirky does um, uh, in the film towards the end. Um, so I found him a... Uh, and then when I came up later to see him, and of course we didn't talk about the film at all, um, he wouldn't have wanted to, and I certainly didn't want to. Um, we talked about all the things. I mean, I was obsessed with Gawain at the time, and, and uh, we talked a lot about Gawain. Well, there's there are a few better people <laughs> in the world or in history to talk to about Gawain. He was delightful. I just heard a, a coup. Cool. We see the clip about the sounds when you're talking about it. <laughs> anyway, uh, John, yes. Uh, to, uh, just continue with what you were saying. It seems ironic to me that someone so. Uh, wonderfully attuned to the sounds of language, should also be such an indistinct speaker at times. Did that cause you any anxiety as you were interviewing him on film? It did. I think that's what gave rise to the rather churlish remarks that I'm supposed to have made about rambling on a bit. It, it was difficult. And as I say, there is a limit to the amount you can cut away from an interviewee without becoming obvious to an audience that there's something not quite right. Um, and you could cut away to other interviewees, which happens a lot in the film, probably too much. Uh, but you can also cut away to stills and other images. But I think after a while, the, the, the nuts and bolts, the mechanisms begin to show. And that I, I think the pity of it was that, yes, he does become indistinct. Because I think that's what it was. I think he sort of, at times, he forgets the camera and he's talking to a chap. Mm -hmm. And a young chap who's rather eager to learn. And so he's going to do that, and he's going to say, well, there was that, when was it, 19, was it 1942, I don't know, was it 40? And then he'll just go off on a riff about whether it was 42 or, or, or who was the chap who had the, the chair before he did. Was it, was it, was it Smith? Was it, was it Smith? I said, join him. Which is, of course, it's sort of a great pleasure in real life. But, um, but as we know, films aren't real life, so... Um, when I was talking to Paddy O'Sullivan, the researcher there, he said he detected in the film um, a slight sadness from Tolkien that success had come to him so late in life. Uh, do you recall that being said? I, I think it's based that he does come down, doesn't he, and say that the yeah. books didn't yeah. catch on a bit sooner, isn't it? And um, I, I think that's, my goodness, if you'd seen what had happened after he, after he died. I Absolutely extraordinary thing. Stratospheric kind of soaring these these stories. Um, uh, but I, I sensed there was that because I think I mean he was a bon viveur, not not a uh, self-indulgent kind of heavy career, but you know, he liked the good things and uh, I think he would have liked some of the money that would have eventually come his way if he if he'd still been alive and stuff had happened, and I think he would have enjoyed distributing it to his family and seeing people, other people enjoy, enjoy it. So yes, I think there was a, a regret there. Uh, there's a section with there's a section with Tolkien and drinking beer in what looks like a restaurant. Yeah. Do you remember where that was? And yeah. So why, why is it still? Is that in yeah. the film? It's a good, good question. 
for skills to save money. Um, there, there came a point where I was using up a lot of footage, um, a lot of film. Um, and so it's one of those things where I thought, rather than, you know, it takes hours to light these places, or used to, it doesn't anymore. But in those days, you had a full lighting crew, and it was very, you know, it was quite unionized, and you had to light the thing and then bring your subject in. And um, I thought, just for, this, just for a meal, that I knew was going to be voiceover, I may have had a few, I may have had a few valuable bits of him chatting over the, over the lunch. Um, but I eventually decided that the cameraman just brought his still camera and took it out of still sequence because it was going to illustrate simply that, that one reading. Um, uh, while I'm talking, I'm just trying to find it. Did he say for tell? I think it was. Yes, he's gay. Thank you. Um, yeah, you've got it, Greg. Yeah, um, that's the first occasion on which I've seen the film, and um, I may not get the details exactly right, but two things I think struck me very much that Tolkien said. The first was about escapism, using the word in its proper sense, as from Christian. The second was there's only one subject for stories, it was long pause. I guess he was looking at you. He said, Step. Um, the, the, the first one, um, my reaction wasn't, wasn't sharp enough because clearly my reaction now and probably many of your reactions would have been to follow that up. Um, another disadvantage of not doing a more formal interview set up. Um, and that deserved uh, following up. The, the thing about death, my reaction was frankly goody. I actually thought, this is fantastic stuff, and this is going to go near the end of the film, because again, you've got the voice in the back of your head while you're, you're doing it. Uh, and I'm just looking to see, preceding it, um, there are some good, and I'm skipping sentences, but preceding that bit about uh, any great story being about death. The, springs, the story is really, the springs of the story really are based on so many stories are. And then he goes off again. At one time, I should be trying to say simply another example of the story. The ring is simply an example of, and this is the trouble with it. But then you hit it. The story of the ring is an example of externalizing the lust for power, isn't it? But that doesn't really work, you know. Power in the narrative is, is the only thing that starts the wheel working, isn't it? What you want is the story. You aren't really interested in so-and-so's lust for power, but his lust for power starts a whole series of events and heroisms and oppositions. And so it's a mechanism which starts the story. Um, and he goes on there. If you really come down now to why and branched off, you'll see how, and again, lots of little phrases jumped in, but the fact that if you really come down to any large story, interest people holds their attention. It's practically always about one thing, death. So that, that's how he led into it. Um, and yes, my, my reaction to it was that's, that's the whole point of, not only the whole point of Lord of the Rings as far as he's uh, defining it there, but it's kind of the, it's the end of the film, or it's going to be very powerful. And it is. He wrote to me, incidentally, about a year after the film had gone out, saying he'd lost the quotation from uh, Simone de Beauvoir. <laughs> so can I send it?
marvelous job of interweaving Tolkien's own uh, responses to the responses. But uh, how did you maintain the freshness and genuineness of all those responses? I thought that was marvelous. It was down to them, really. It was, it was the people themselves who were being uh, very well chosen, but who were also enormously enthusiastic. Mm -hmm. And in a few cases, I think, uh, perceptive uh, beyond their ostensible role, which was to act as a kind of narrative. I mean, they were the narrators in a sense, mm -hmm. and there wasn't a, a sort of godlike narrating figure telling you. So they were the narrators. But I think occasionally one or two, one or two of their remarks just took it into a really quite a perceptive area, um, and 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 also, of course, gave me really nice cues to get into uh, Tolkien himself and his his responses. Um, however. Um, much he was in agreement or however much he thought what it was complete nonsense that was just been proposed. So it was, it was the, the people themselves, it was not, not my remarkable skills. Because again with them, I think as far as I remember, I did what I did with Tolkien, but I more cued them into, please talk about this, rather than saying, what is, you know, what, what is your feeling about it? because we are getting, and I, I remember when I wrote to Leslie just to say, you know, you do realise this half-hour documentary you made is, is poured over by Tolkien scholars and has been for decades, and we've every word, so to see the rushes and to hear some of the transcripts there, it's kind of like striking gold, and I'm very wary of my personal safety being back to be given the transcripts <laughs> and the rushes. I don't think I'm going to get out of college alive. But anyway, um, is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion about thinking back? It must be very emotional, I suppose, thinking back 40 or 50 years since that time and seeing it all again. It's, it's only emotional because I, I'm beginning to think I don't remember things very well. So it's, it's, it's slightly worrying. But um, uh, no, I, I thank you for your um, reception of it. Which, um, which um, was uh, was kind. While well, I think you you recognised um, a certain disappointment at the time that I couldn't do the the, the longer film that I set out to do. Um, but again, I can't use that as too much of a a fallback position because um, uh, well, indeed, he, he just seemed the answer to one of the one of the questions about. Uh, the fact that occasionally um, it, it's probably um, better on, on paper or more comprehensible on paper than it is on film. Um, and that, as I say, is, is really down to the fact that um, you don't expect someone at that date and indeed in his position to, um, to have those sort of snappy one-liners that television loves so much. But, um, can also see that even when I couldn't quite understand what he was saying, it's still pretty really Well, I'm going to close this session. I know Julia wants to say some final words, but could I ask you to put your hands together and thank you for it.